Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill, publisher of the New York Times bestselling novel Pictures of You by Carolyn Levitt. Pictures of You is about a mysterious car crash on a deserted foggy road, a crash that brings three people together in a collision of their own. It's about a lot more than that. Kirkus calls it heartfelt, deft, and highly readable. Publishers Weekly says a touching story of loss and discovery. The San Francisco Chronicle calls it hauntingly compelling. And the Boston Globe says provocative and riveting. Pictures of You is about processing both discovery and loss, discerning when to hold on and when to let go, and understanding what in the middle of it all makes life meaningful. That's Pictures of You from Algonquin. It's by Carolyn Levitt. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. My name is Brad Listy. This is the program. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, today's guest is Adam Levin. He is the author of The Instructions. That's a novel. It was published by McSweeney's. It's a very big novel. It was met with great critical acclaim, lots of accolades, lots of superlatives were used in describing this novel, uh, and it's very large. It's in excess of 1,000 pages, I believe, or somewhere thereabouts, and when it came out, uh, there were a lot of comparisons made to Infinite Jest, uh, precisely for that reason, the size of the book, but also the size of its narrative scope and its ambition and all the rest. So very uh, interesting conversation with Adam Levin. We talk about his upbringing in Chicago. He's a Chicago guy. We talk about his uh, schooling. He got his MFA at Syracuse and uh, studied with guys like George Saunders. And then we also talk about his exotic fowl. He is a uh, bird owner. He has a pet bird, the kind of pet bird that like sits on your shoulder and stuff. So we'll get into that as well. Adam Levin and I in just a moment. Before I get there, uh, some things to discuss. I've been getting some letters, uh, lots of nice feedback again this week. Appreciate it. Most of it overwhelmingly kind, uh, and I can't thank you enough. So the first letter is from a girl named Zoe who says, Dear Brad, I want you to talk about Occupy Wall Street and the Occupy Writers Movement, and I want you to answer this question. 
Why are some people so selfish? Why are people so effing greedy when it comes to money and stuff? It's just stuff. Zoe. Um, I am a member of Occupy Writers. I added my name to that list enthusiastically. I, I To talk about it for me, it would lead to like a rambling mess, I fear, because I'm not an authority on the subject. You know, I have a, a, a general sense, and, and I think it, you know, it, it is rooted in, in uh, real reading and I think real knowledge. You know, I have a visceral connection to what's happening down there, and I'm a big fan of it. But I think that writers like Matt Taibbi and Michael Lewis, like those are the kinds of writers who uh, I feel most comfortable pointing to when it comes to this, because they are guys who have been invested in really understanding the financial markets and the corruption in our financial system and how that's enmeshed with our politics and all the rest. So, you know, when it comes to people being weird with money and stuff, I will offer you this anecdote. Okay, and I don't know how illuminating it's going to be, but it's something that I always turn to in my mind whenever these sorts of uh, themes arise. I can't shake this memory for some reason. And I was on a plane, and I think I was uh, headed from New York to Los Angeles. And so I'm on this flight. It's a five-hour flight, and I've got to grade papers. I've got to teach the next day. I've got a bag full of essays or short stories or whatever it is. I'm tired, but I'm on this flight, and i got nowhere else to go, and so I might as well grade them and get it done. And so I, I reach into my bag, and I remove the essays, and then I realize that I don't have a writing utensil. I do not have a pen for whatever reason. It was lost to me. And so I turned to this little old woman sitting next to me, uh, a very nice-looking woman, you know, meaning she looked like she was kind. And I said, excuse me, do you have anything you know, to write with? Do you have a pen? And she wasn't writing anything at the time. She was reading a book. And she said, sure. And she reaches down under her seat. She's not, like, super friendly, but she was nice enough. And she reached down under her seat, and she removed, like, a Bic pen from her purse, like the most ordinary 99-cent cheap Bic pen you could possibly imagine. And she gives it to me. I thanked her. I started working. I sat there for about an hour grading papers, using this woman's pen, and then uh, I had to use the lavatory. And so I get up, and I set my papers in a nice stack on my seat, and then on top of the stack of papers, I set this woman's pen. And I said, excuse me, because she was sitting on the aisle. I was in the window. And I said, excuse me, I need, you know, I need to get up. And uh, you know, she looks down at my, at, at my stack of papers and at her pen, and she's like, I'm just going to take this back now. And I said, okay. Like, I didn't even know how to process that. I just said, okay. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she, she tells me, I don't want it to get lost. And she takes the pen back, and she puts it in her purse. And I, I don't know why I didn't say, well, I'm not done, but it just seemed I didn't want to get into it. You know, it was just odd that she was like just waiting for me to be done with this pen. And I figured, well, maybe she needs to use it. So whatever. I go to the, uh, go to the lavatory. I'm walking back up uh, the aisle afterwards towards my seat. I pass a flight attendant, uh, and I say to the guy, I say, do you have an ink pen by any chance? He says, sure, man. He pulls a pen out of his pocket. It's like a, you know, an American Airlines pen or whatever, and he gives it to me. And I take it back to my seat. I sit down. I buckle up. I have my papers again, and I'm using this pen. And the woman, I should point out, is next to me reading her book. She's not writing anything. And so she looks over at me, and she's like, where'd you get that pen? And I was like, oh, a flight attendant gave it to me. And she frowned at me, like, how dare you use somebody else's pen? It was like that kind of thing. And that, to me, encapsulates it somehow. It was weird. I could not please her. I don't know what the deal was. I don't know, I don't know what it was with that pen or that whole transaction. But I think that the, the mystery 
that, that, you know, Zoe is asking about is somehow uh, embedded in that story. So uh, on to other letters quickly. I got a nice letter from a, a girl named Shannon who said, Dear Brad, I really like your show. Your introductions and the way you talk about your own life is really beautiful to me. I'm turned off when people pretend to have all their shit together. When you were talking about how you didn't feel like your name was literary, well, that was that was neurotic, but it's also one of the uh, neurotic writer things that I've thought about myself. I'm starting to yammer, but you get my point. Thank you for doing the show. It makes my days at work a little better, and I appreciate that. So that's a nice note. Thanks to Shannon. Uh, also, a note from a guy named Darren who says, Dear Brad, you need to stop masturbating on air at the open of the show. And then in all caps, he says, Nobody cares, dude. Don't pretend to be funny. That's my two cents. Just get to the author, shut up, and ask questions. How hard is that? So that's interesting. Get to the author, shut up, and ask questions. How hard is that? Uh, the next letter is from a girl, or no, it's from a guy named Michael who says, Hey, Brad, listening to your show has made me realize that I'm not crazy. I mean, I am crazy, but I'm not like, quote, publicly crazy, end quote. I think most writers are crazy in this way and maybe even most people. I'm 21 and a college dropout living at home. I'm working on a horror novel, a horror novel at the moment. It's a horror novel with a lot of poetry in it. And basically what I'm doing is telling the story of my high school years through the eyes of a deranged serial killer. So anyway, thanks for the show. Keep it real, Michael. Uh, Last one I got was from a girl named Caitlin who says, Dear Brad, does art even matter? Does it really even matter? That's it. That's all she wants to know. The only thing I can say to uh, to Caitlin, or what I would say to Caitlin, is uh, to think about Jaws. Okay? This is what I like to think about when I wonder if art can have an impact on people in a really tangible way. Okay? And it's sort of a funny way to think about it. But think about Jaws. It was a novel. It was written by Pete, uh, Peter Benchley. It was then made into a very famous movie by Steven Spielberg. Okay? Then think about the fact that this movie by Steven Spielberg, this adaptation of the Peter Benchley novel with the soundtrack by John Williams, that indelible soundtrack, that ocean music soundtrack, the shark music. Think about that and think about what an effect that has on people, particularly people in, like, you know, my generation or thereabouts, people who grew up with that movie. And then think about the fact that the Earth is 70% water, okay? 70% of the globe, roughly, is covered in water, and, uh, you know, for a lot of people, millions of people, that story ruined 70% of the planet for them. They can't swim comfortably in the ocean. Even if they're willing to go in the ocean, they can't stay in without thinking about death and sharks and being eaten alive by a vicious sea creature. And then there are other people for whom the ocean is ruined to the extent that they'll never swim in it. It's a full-blown phobia. They're not going anywhere near it. They can't even swim in fresh water where they can't see the bottom. It's got to be a swimming pool. That is the power of Jaws. And I think it's real when you think about it. Those, those guys, John Williams, Peter Benchley, and Steven Spielberg, might have ruined more of the planet for more people psychologically than any three men in the history of narrative. So that's my answer to you, Caitlin, about whether or not art matters. I think it matters. Come on, it matters. Life without art would be intolerable. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, I think that's pretty much it. I don't think I have anything else to say. I feel like I've uh, expelled lots of thoughts, uh, but thanks to everybody for listening and offering your thoughts on the show and uh, whatnot. So let me get on with the program, on with the interview, my conversation with Adam Levin, the author of The Instructions. So you just gave a reading. I did. How do you like those? Um, it depends on the reading. Uh, I, I, I did like the one I just gave. It stage was, uh, fright? Anything like that? I used to have mad stage fright, and now it's basically when I haven't done a reading for a while, I get stage fright. And then when I have done one, there's, there's, there's some arc, you know, somewhere if, if I have like five readings in a row, like, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, then in the middle, I'm real happy about it. The beginning stage fright. And then the end, it's like, I get this sort of meta stage fright where I'm like, I'm not tense enough. I'm going to go in and like be real conversational and kind of dull. And you feel like, you, yeah, you feel like you don't have enough tension. You need a little yeah, bit of an exactly. edge. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, and I used to just like, you know, chug coffee and chain smoke cigarettes and, and just get like sort of ramped up. But even that, you know, that, that has its fall off. So if I'm not reading first, then, <laughs> you know, by the time I get there, I'm, you know, right. Well now, wondering. what, uh, how many readings have you done at this point? I mean, this is, is this your, this is your first novel? Is it correct? First novel. Yeah. First novel. So like first big tour, Absolutely. first big media push for anything you've ever written. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the instructions, mm-hmm. a behemoth, it's a large book, a large, what, what, what do you call it? You know, a, a, a manifesto, no, no, not a manifesto, no, no. a, uh, magnum opus, magnum opus. Maybe, maybe you can, yeah, that, that's, I'm comfortable with that. Comfortable. I, I wouldn't call it that, but you know, you, 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 you can, you can call it that. I'm good with that. What is the actual page count in hardcover? What was uh, it? It's 1030. 1030. Yeah. Not easy to get a 1030, a 1030 page book published. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not so easy. Of yeah. literary fiction. Yeah, yeah. So how did and it, McSweeney's published it? Yeah, it happened actually. It happened. It was. It felt pretty easy. <laughs> it was. Uh, Just, uh, I seamless. mean, it wasn't easy to write it. It, it was. Uh, but but yeah, I uh, I showed it to uh, I showed it to Eli at McSweeney's. I'd, I'd worked with him um, on a couple stories uh, for the quarterly, and uh, he's brilliant and helped me make my stories better. So I showed it to him, and uh, he read it in ten days, and and then he wanted it. That so, was it. Yeah, it was. It was pretty. I mean, there was you know there was more involvement negotiations and things like this um agent got involved but but there was yeah it was and the second that he said he wanted it we we talked a lot about what he you know what kind of vision he had for it um and uh which was important because i knew i was going to be revising it and we revised it for like 18 months but he said a bunch of really great stuff he said a bunch of insightful things about the book and uh 
yeah, and it worked out. It was dreamy. God. So yeah, yeah. So how okay, how big was the manuscript? In 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 manuscript pages, it was like some close to sixteen hundred. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I don't know what that would translate to the way the hardcovers. I mean, I think it was I think it was like I think it was four hundred ten thousand words. Holy and shit! Then, yeah, and I think now it's about four hundred four thousand words. But you know, we cut over the revision period. I think I cut, you know, I you know a hundred thousand words. Rewrote eighty five thousand words. You know, so it was it was uh, yeah. There was, so it was, it was a heavy revision. Oh okay. yeah, it was eighteen months. Was all I did. It was um. I mean, the book. You know, the, the whole thing. Like I think the draft took seven and a half years or something, and then the revision was was eighteen months, and it was about as intense. I mean, at least maybe sometimes more intense than the. You know uh, the actual the initial writing of the book because I have this really smart editor poking at me all the time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and so uh, so yeah, so it was, it was very intense revision. Yeah. Holy shit! So seven and a half years. Mm-hmm. What kind of discipline are we talking? I don't know if it's discipline. I mean, it's, it's, it was. Um, I get I get uh, I get really uncomfortable when I don't work. Um, so I don't know if it's if it's discipline so much as just uh, neurosis. Yeah, and I mean it's not even it's not like a. I don't know. I, I'd like to think it's not neurosis, like, but but I mean, I guess that's probably the shorthand for it. I mean, okay. um, you know, there's yeah. a lot of different ways to catch it. You're committed. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's basically like I actually like I feel kind of lousy if I don't work. It's not it's not like I, I if I don't work one day, I beat myself up like you're no good. You didn't work today. It's really just like I feel sort of if I don't wake up and work, then the rest of the day feels sort of distant and um, gross, and I'm, I'm I feel like I'm not connected to people and. I don't know. It's it's a you know. No, I get it, especially when you're in the thick of a book project. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, you feel sort of an obligation to it, mm-hmm. and then as a writer, period, you feel an obligation to be getting words down. That that too, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think yeah, the discipline stuff came a lot earlier. I think you develop a discipline, and then it sort of it sticks, or you know, you're under its thumb, you know, in a way. So so we t- uh, do you, do you work on a, a word count or a page count on a daily basis, no, or just time? It's hours, I think, and you know, and and again, it's not like a set amount of hours. It, it was you know for for a long period. When I was when I was teaching, I was teaching comp for quite a while, and you know, adjuncting, doing you know more classes than one should be. Where at? teaching um, the School of the Art Institute in Columbia, in Chicago. Yeah, Columbia, Chicago, and um, Roosevelt. No, Roosevelt. I didn't teach comp. That was that was an MFA. But but um, but yeah, I was teaching. You know, kind of where I could get it. I needed to you know earn dough, and um, <clears throat> the classes were often. Uh, to get those classes, I was I would be very open to working. You know the shift no one wants. You know I'd take the nine o'clock class. So um, my dog just barked. That was, it was it pretty, happens. It sounded pretty cool through the microphone. Yeah. Um, but uh, but so that you know to get the classes, I'd say yeah, I'll, I'll teach your nine o'clock class. And so then, but I had to work every morning, so I was waking up at four and you know wake up at four, get out of bed, work for you know a few hours, and go teach at nine, and um, then come back home and work more and. Um, so I think um, there it's was like there military. Was it's there. military level. Yeah, it? but it get, it got kind of cool. I mean, there's like you're you know when you're waking up at four, you're going to sleep at like nine or nine thirty. You're in a different world than like everyone else in your age group. You know, unless you're maybe you know seventy five. Right. <laughs> and so um, it was kind of you know I, I, my my relationship with the, to the day was very different than, than other folks. And luckily, uh, my my girlfriend, um, she's a high school teacher, and she's you know she's she's waking up pretty early. You know, so it it, it was. Uh, but that was yeah. That was well, but four, but four o'clock to nine, mm-hmm. it's a good. I mean, any like I talk to people, you know, who, uh, writers tend to work late at night or early in the morning. I agree. Yeah, it's it's one or the other. It's like the you know either one's a witching hour in its yeah. own way. You mm-hmm. know, where the world is sort of quiet. Yep. The distractions are minimal. 
the Facebook feed is sort of quiet. It's yeah. not moving vertically at like, you know, exactly ticker tape speed. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, to this day, I mean, do you work like a nine to five situation now more? No, now I got, I got this, I have uh, what you mean in terms of the writing? Yeah. I mean, or are you still an early bird? No, I'm still, well, I'm not waking up at four, but, uh, but I, I'm a pretty early riser. So it's like, but, but I'm, I'm, you know, right now I've been working on this, this collection that's coming out. And so, but, but that's in revisions and that has, that, that's closer to done, you know, and like, like it's, it's a, it's a much different process than with a novel because the novel is one thing and like. Whereas the collection, I, I, I feel free to bounce back and forth in my revisions between what I'm working on, and for some reason that that takes the time pressure off. Like I, I'm better with that. Like I, I'm more efficient, um, and uh, so I wake up, you know, at six or seven, and then uh, and I don't work for as long either. I work, you know, maybe four or five hours instead of you know seven or eight. Uh, some days seven or eight, but yeah. And, well, I mean, but four or five hours, you can get a lot done. I, most people can. I'm. I'm a, <laughs> I delete a lot. I yeah. mean, I, I'm like I, I'm. I throw away lots of stuff. So, well, but, and like, sometimes yeah. I feel like you just got to warm up. I mean, you can spend yeah. two or three hours just kind of like noodling yeah. or just sitting there staring at a flashing cursor. And see, I think that's. Why I, I don't often stare at flashing cursors. I do stare at a lot of commas. I mean, like it's. It, but but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a similar spirit. Um, I, I I think you're right. Like I think that. That, that there's a sort of, and I, I try to change it up like once in a while, like sort of consciously be like, okay, you're not allowed to obsess over the grammar of this of, of these sentences right now, right? Like you have, you have to push yourself forward. That doesn't tend to work so well, but a lot of times it's like you sculpt some paragraph some way, and it's almost arbitrary. Like it was fine before, but you had to get into it to, you know, uh, feel like you were in it, <laughs> and then and then you can go forward and sort of sort of roll. But uh, yeah, and, and sometimes like two or three hours of painful toggling. And um and then suddenly you're like oh this is where this thing's gonna go um I don't know does that does that make sense it makes some sense yeah you know I feel like there's I mean and tell me if this is true for you like that there sometimes is a visual uh, part of writing that goes uh not unspoken but just like it doesn't get talked about as much. Mm-hmm. The look of a sentence, the shape of a paragraph. Sure, certainly. Does that matter? Well, I mean, not in the way, for me, you know, I know Flannery O'Connor cared a lot about that kind of thing. And for me, it's a sound thing. Um, but I certainly do have this, and it might just be because I like Flannery O'Connor so much, but in, and sometimes I'm looking at a page, and it's, it's often when there's, like, a lot of dialogue and there's a lot of white space between two large paragraphs, I get uncomfortable. I'm like, that does not look right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think more than that... Um, it's, it's a sound thing. And I think that what I end up doing, like when I'm staring at something, I'm like sort of rehearsing everything in my head. Like I'm reading it out and, you know, sometimes like, you know, whispering it under my breath or whatever. Muttering like weird. a crazy person. Yeah. Which, you know, and I, and I have this parrot, um, and he he sits on my shoulder a lot of times. I mean, not, not, not much when I'm writing. This is not like, let me tell you about my cutesy parrot thing. But You're like, shitting me that you really, you really have a parrot. I do. I do have a little, little Quaker parrot. And, uh, What's a Quaker parrot? Quaker parrot's sweet. They live in Chicago. They're, um, they're originally from Argentina and they, you know, they sort of the typical thing they fell out of a truck or you know they escaped a pet store but they figured out um how to survive chicago winters they make these crazy nests and um like three room nests and they condo them out they like they combine them with other people's other parrots three room nests and anyway but but i have one and uh he when i first got him i was we were like inseparable like i was you know like i always wanted to you know have him near me (laughs) and he's and parrots are like that they want that so he'd be on my shoulder and one day um while i was working he started like making these like whispering sounds and it was he was mimicking me like doing this like 
this psychotic muttering of like you know reading reading these sentences like under my breath yeah in my breath yeah exactly but it's cute it's it's better than him screaming yeah so it was like I was was very you know softly muttering the comma the comma (laughs) 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 so how long do these Quaker parrots live the parrots live long well yeah it's it's the 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 Quakers you know it's weird with with birds they just figured out the, the the science of the diet stuff so it's it's uh Quakers, I think, in captivity live to be somewhere between, like, 25 and 40. But, like, that is measured, you know, based on their eating seeds, which is, like, which they've discovered is sort of, like, feeding uh, parrots, like, French fries their whole lives. And so now they have these, like, sciencey diets. And the same thing happened with, with dogs and everything. And they think that uh, they think they could that, that all of these parrots can be living, you know, two to three times as long as they've been living. So you take something like a macaw, you know, which can live which can live to be like a hundred, hundred twenty years old. They think they can live to be three hundred now. Like it's it's really crazy. Um, so <laughs> like your parrot, there's yeah. there's a chance your parrot could outlive you, yeah, even if you live yeah. your full like lifespan. Yeah, which I which I hope doesn't happen because he, he they're they're really um, they really latch on and like he's he's very much like my parrot. You know, he doesn't he likes my girlfriend, doesn't like other people so much if if if, uh if i were to what's his name gogol gogol yeah it was originally monkey and then i was told i was an asshole the name my my can i swear on here yeah of course i was was told i was a fucking asshole (laughs) to uh (laughs) to name my parrot monkey um this was by my mother she told me that i I bought the parrot i called him like i got a parrot she's like what did you name it and i said monkey and she's you're a fucking asshole (laughs) (laughs) and so so i and 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 i told my girlfriend that my mother said that and she was like hey kind of a fucking asshole and i said okay name him after one of my favorite writers and you know i'll just be that dorky asshole rather than the (laughs) so you know i have a dog i've always i've always had dogs i I had had cats for a little while Mm -hmm. Uh, but they were my roommates. I really like cats. My wife's allergic, so that's I'm, out of the out of the question for us. But what's that mean? You have a pet bird. Mm-hmm. You're in it for the long haul with this bird. Yeah. What do you do on a daily basis? Is this thing screeching and shitting all over the place? Not all over the place. I mean, he's out of the cage. He's 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 pretty well trained. He's a, he's a sweetheart. If if someone comes over, he'll like kind of scream in his head off if he doesn't like them. But um. He's loud. I mean, I'm sort of deaf because of him. <laughs> like, no joke. Like, I'm a, you know, I think my left ear is a little out. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, it's day to day. Like, we hang out. Like, he, he's, we have, like, when I'm writing, he wakes up. He's under, you know, a cover. He wakes up. He screams a couple times. So then I, you know, I, I open his cage up, feed him. And he basically sits on top of his cage while I write. And doesn't do, doesn't bother me. Like, he's like, he knows it's quiet time. And uh, he's cool with that. And, you know, then we, you know, sit around, smoke cigarettes together. And, you know. Uh, he smokes? <laughs> he smokes a little. No, no. I mean, but, but, <laughs> but no, he's like, he's really like, there. as long as I'm doing things in a predictable way, um, he's good with it. So it's like, if I'm writing when I usually write, he's totally cool. But and, see, I feel like almost all animals, including humans, mm-hmm. I mean, but especially when you have pets, like... Mm-hmm. If you provide them with a, a, a regimen or some sort of predictable yeah. schedule, they function well in that environment. Yeah, and they love it. I mean, they, they like that's that's what makes them happy. They're comfortable. They're like things are happening as I want them to happen, and I've, I, you know, I have eaten my food, and nothing is threatening me. It's right. like you change it up, maybe something's threatening them, and so, so yeah. So, what is a parrot behavior aside from sitting there and then screeching when strangers come over? Do they like groom themselves? They're eating? yeah, yeah. And mine, you know, the thing that the Quaker, the thing that's cool with them, and cockatoos are like this too. But it's pretty rare with parrots. But the Quakers are really cuddly. So like they actually like my bird will like you know he like lays in my hand and like you spoon. But we you know you could crush him. You but anyway you know it's like you have like you know you laugh but but you, you meet a bird and it likes you it's kind of it's kind of it's 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 a weird thing because I, I grew up i really didn't like animals growing up like i was i was that guy like i'd like look at people with their dog and be like, 
fuck you, you fucking cute dog. What's wrong with you? you know, <laughs> no, but did you think they were unclean? I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It was like they're unclean and they're like they're stupid and they don't like. And people would talk about their animals having you know emotional lives and. You but know, you didn't just, have pets as a kid. I did, and I just didn't. I didn't. You know, I would, I was mean to them. Like we had a we had a. Well, I think we had a we had a pomeranian for a minute, and my mother didn't train it right, and so it like pissed everywhere, and so we got rid of it. And then we had a Siamese cat who was totally golden, was with our with our family forever. But like that thing, like I got bored with him. I'd like you know throw him. Like it was like, <laughs> like I wasn't like torturing him, you know. But it was like I, like it was it was not fun. It was it was because uh, I didn't see it as a as a sort of sentient being. Um, and uh, and so yeah, and then thereafter, like I moved out of my parents' house, and I was like, you know, animals—they're gross. They You're just smell like throwing funny. Throwing your cat around the room. Oh, I throw him down a laundry chute. Like <laughs> you know, he liked it. I think because he'd come back up and stand on top of the laundry chute. But it was like it was definitely um, I was bored like with with with, with them, and um, and so I, I totally just didn't care about animals. And people would have their dogs. My friends would have their animals, and I like I, I would. They'd want me to admire their cuteness, and I'd be like, "It's fucking disgusting." It's like, it's like rubbing its ass on like your carpet, and like you know, like like honestly, and it was really sort of like like you know, it wasn't hatred for animals. It was just like sort of you know revulsion. And uh, and I met a parakeet like at, at this party, and it was just, like a really shitty Love party. Love first sight. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. It wasn't even like it was a shitty party. We were trying to leave, and we went when and who's we? Me, me and my girlfriend, and like we went in this uh, coat room, and she was sort of the same way with animals as I am. And uh, we went into the room where our coats were, and the hostess sort of like caught us and like didn't want us to leave. She like she came in, and um, the, there was this parakeet in there who I had no interest in. And she was like, "You have to meet the parakeet." And I was like, "Not this shit again." But like, um, <laughs> you know, but it was a friend from my girlfriend's work, you know. And so it was like I had you know be nice. And so she took this bird out and like flew over and like landed on my shoulder and then like flew off and then came back. And I was like, and I like you know touched it on the face and I was like, this thing is like electing to be I mean it's a bird so it's like a wild animal you know what I mean like, these things aren't like domesticated this is these are budgies like they live they fly in flocks in Australia and stuff and like sure this dude like like came over and I was like that's that's kind of cool and he doesn't smell he's a bird right they don't really smell um and uh, so then I does their feces smell when they I mean they don't it doesn't smell it well you clean like, it I mean I'm sure if it like if it sat there rotting but yeah no it's not it's not like they're they, they're they're pretty clean and they don't salivate you know they're right. like they're um uh yeah, they're dinosaurs, you know. <laughs> like they're they're uh, they're dinosaurs, and and uh, so anyway, so I got one for my girlfriend. <laughs> you know, like long story short, Christmas a couple gift? months later, birthday gift. Birthday it was birthday. Gift. It was. It was uh, I was like, let's do. You know, I, I she 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 felt weird about it. I felt weird. I was like, let's do this because it's kind of nice to buy your girlfriend an animal. It's sure, you know, yeah. like it turns out. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and then like I would like wanted to hang out with it all the time, and I sort of started obsessively watching YouTube videos of birds. It was like really dorky. It's like the exact opposite of how I had been. For you know, like thirty years, and um, the switch flipped totally, totally, and like, um, and I felt you know ooky about it, and I feel like kind of ooky talking about it. like it's like it's like unmasculine or something. But it's like <laughs> you know, this is how it is, and uh, and uh, and so I was like, I have to stop watching these fucking YouTube videos all the time. It's like I'm supposed to be working, and uh, so I went and I bought a bird, basically. Um, you bring the bird home. Did, was it like? Wrapping paper around the cage, surprise, or your girlfriend no, no, knew it was coming. No, no, oh, oh, the, the, her bird, her bird was. Oh, uh, oh, I'm talking about my bird. My so wait, bird, you have yeah. two birds. Oh, she has a bird. We don't live together. Oh. She, I mean, we, we were about to. Too, um, but but she she had she had a bird. I actually, bought her a second bird at a certain point. It died. It was very sad. But um, she, uh, you're Bamate, man. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm talking said, faster. I, and faster. I, I gave him South American <laughs> green tea, and he's jacked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she. Uh, 
I gave I gave her a, a parakeet, and then I got this Quaker parrot a few months later, and then I bought her a lovebird a few months after. Oh that. my Love, god! Lovebird died. Oh but, yeah, yeah. But we were we were, we were moving Stephen in poem. together. So there's yeah. a poem in there. Right, right. Now hopefully the birds don't kill each other when we move. Well, in that's together. what I was going to say. What what happens when you you force these birds to to share the same domestic space? Well, it, the same domestic space will be fine if we force them to share the same cage. One of them will die, and it will probably be her bird because my really? cage is bigger. Yeah, they'll fight. Yeah, because well, I shouldn't say it's not necessarily the case. I mean, they we've had them in proximity to each other, and they sort of like they check each other out. And, but it, it's really weird because the parakeet's like a third the size of a Quaker parrot. And you were talking like really small birds. Parakeet weighs like thirty grams, which is you know he weighs uh, an ounce. You know, um, and. Uh, the, my Quaker weighs 90 grams, right? So these are both like very light things, but one of them's three times bigger than the other. And uh, he, my mind could kill hers in a swipe, and hers could do some serious damage to my like bit off his toe or something, you know? So, uh, so yeah, what so, are you going to do? You're going to have them in separate cages? Separate cages, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But and, you uh, might take them out and like have one on one shoulder and one on the other? Absolutely, which I've done before, yeah. When I was feeling particularly dorky. Now, what about going out in public with these things? Do you do that? No, I'm not that guy. That's, You're not. I, know, I, can't, I can't believe how much I've just talked about the bird. I mean, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a, like... <laughs> this is what this podcast yeah. is all about. Yeah, this is authors yeah, revealing yeah, yeah. these um, idiosyncrasies. Exactly, yeah. Um, no, so, I, I saw what's the parakeet's name? The parakeet's name is Pickle. Pickle and Pickle. Gogol. Pickle and Gogol. And what happened... What was the lovebird's name? Yo-Yo. What happened to Yo-Yo? Yo-Yo. It was very sad, man. It was, it was uh, just like this sort of... It, she got her her nail caught in a in like a string on like in uh, she had like a rope toy and she got her nail caught in it and uh, she started freaking out and flapping around and my girlfriend came and got her free and then like she like had something had happened to her leg like it was it was real weird we took her to the vet and the vet was like this weird thing happens with lovebirds where they can just get paralyzed suddenly and then they can start dying and then we were in the vet's office and this turned into like this little thing that happened where the bird got its nail stuck and like there's no blood nothing's broken and it's but but it had lost the use of both of its both of its claw like both hands and um both feet <laughs> and uh and then sort of its lungs started it started heaving a lot like it was it's hard to describe but it but um we had to we had to put her down i mean it was like it was, it was yeah it's it sucked it was it was out of nowhere i mean like it was just like zero cause for this the vet was like this happens once in a while no one really understands it and what kind of vet do you have you have to go to a special vet special vet, vet yeah for what what is, is there a name for it avian vet I mean, oh an avian yeah, vet yeah, that's right yeah. but she sees that that vet it's like a it's like three or four vets they see all weird animals so it's like you go the waiting room is pretty sweet because it's like you go in and there's like an iguana and there's you know some crazy glow-in-the-dark frog or something and, you know like a big ass <laughs> bird and so I mean, there can't be too many of those in Chicago. I mean, it's like no, it's you pretty go pretty far. Yeah, yeah, we have to go. We have to go to Elmwood Park. Actually, there's one in the city, but it's actually a little quicker to go out west. So what's I mean, what's uh, your feeling on Chicago? You like it? It's home. I love Chicago. Um, you're yeah, that's it. You're staying there. Well, I mean, as long as I have a job there, I'm staying there. Um, I don't have any plans to leave. Uh, and you and you teach? I teach. Yeah, yeah. You um, like it? I love teaching. I love teaching. Yeah. So like creative writing and creative comp. Writing. No, no more comp. I don't like teaching comp. Um, yeah. But I got. I used to teach comp, and then it was like when I got to creative writing, yeah. it was like the promised land. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like because it's it's you. I mean, I'm sure you, you went to USC as you said. You, you probably had teachers who you admired, and you were like they've actually taught me stuff. And whereas, and, and I did too. And but I've never had that feeling about a comp teacher. <laughs> well, I just I was teaching at Santa Monica College, yeah. and the comp classes I was teaching. I mean, it was like. I felt like it was important work because uh, I was teaching like l the lowest level. Sure, sure. And the 
the aptitude of the students uh, in those particular classes was between third and seventh grade. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I actually I taught at a community college when I first got. And, and I, I should I should clarify just in def- before I before you continue. Yeah. The the writing skills. Right. Like they weren't third to seventh grade, you know, uh, right. mentally, but just right, right. in terms of like Absolutely. Know, usage, grammar, et cetera. Right. And then, it, and it becomes this weird thing. Like, cause I, I did this when, when I, when I first, uh, when I first got back to Chicago from, from, from Syracuse, um, I taught at, uh, at Kennedy King for a semester, which is like, like the, there's like eight, I think community colleges in Chicago. And this is like the, the worst, like this is, this is the one that's like, um, the easiest to get into. And has the most leaks in the ceiling. Like it was like you're walking down the hall and thing, you know, like the ceiling's breaking, and it's kind of amazing that this is a community college. It's, it's um, and so yeah, you have these students who it, it was really is really wigged out because they had very 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 low literacy skills, but they're in college, and on top of that, they were the best students in their high school. That's why they're in college, and they were told that they were the best students in high school, but then they're handing in like agrammatical sentences in a freshman um, composition class. And it's hard to figure out how to grade them because it's sort of like there needs like a, I felt like there has to be like a buck stopping thing. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, they need to learn grammar. <laughs> like, and, and, and I'm, I have no idea how to teach grammar. I mean, like, I, I don't know, like, and I, you know, I tried, um, but, uh, but it was very weird. Like I, I, there was no one that I felt, and I was, you know, it was like, you have to grade on a curve essentially was the answer from, from my bosses, but that just felt all wrong. Cause it's like, if, if they go through all of college like that. Um, they're going to come out with a college education that means nothing. Well, that, it's that, but it's, th- th- this is the dilemma, though, mm-hmm. that you either have them get through college and have a degree right. that is robbed of a, a great deal of its meaning, mm-hmm. or you fail them. Right. And if I were to do that, like a good percentage of my students would drop out and never return. Right. So which situation is, is you know, which which is the worst? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I the... the the problems obviously come a lot earlier when you have you know um, students who who are not reading and writing properly. It's it's stuff that they that that the system failed to teach them you know very early on. Um, but I think my feeling is like if I have a twenty twenty one year old like that's an adult, and um, if they're if they're in my class and they can't write and they don't show any desire to to write and it is just like I want to get through this to have a degree. Um, there's nothing that like that degree is gonna really get them. I don't think that like I feel like it's a it's a larger waste of their time. And it would be more like I would direct you to like learn a trade or something, which there's like an which is a totally legit and awesome thing to be able to do, um, you know. And like increasingly, like, yeah. And there was like. there was an automotive school like below the community college, and I was like, those kids are like learning something that is useful. Um, and you know, so so it's like I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really I'm not I don't think any of my students. Um, at that in, in those classes at Kennedy King, we're going to come out and get office jobs. You know what I mean? Even like the kind of office, like I mean, office we're writers. You know, you know, like an office job. But it's like you know, I think that's a certain kind of fantasy, middle class fantasy, and like um, to have some some office job. And I don't, I don't think they could they could last in an office job, and, and uh, if or maybe even get one. And so it's it's like maybe you do fail, and like that's like yeah, like go go. You know, you're young and strong, but you're an adult. Go figure out how to make some money. I mean, if that's what it's about, I mean, that's then, I don't think it's much good to get, get a, get a degree to folks who, for whom it's going to be meaningless. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I just, I guess I get into their personal stories and what will they, what will they go back to and mm-hmm. will they ever go and, you know, pursue some sort of uh, trade and right. you just don't know, but it's heartbreaking when somebody's 
you know, 18, 19 years old. And I had a student, uh, you know, I had m- m- you know, multiple students who, uh, like really rudimentary things like addressing an envelope. Mm-hmm. I had to teach that. Right. You right. Know, like yeah. to a college freshman. Exactly. And you just go, Christ, like the public school system. Yeah. failed these uh, kids so badly right. and it's it's just and it's like may, and it's maybe irreparable i mean literacy is like one of those things that really has to be you know seated pretty early and uh i mean i don't know maybe that's it's like i don't even sound all doom and gloom about it but it's like but there are other things a person yeah, we've gone from like the dead love bird into this yeah, and, i know jeez man <laughs> that was my books you know what are we cut, doing? i'm gonna yeah, cut like, myself yeah. <laughs> uh no but you know it's it's interesting stuff it's vital work uh, you know i i uh I don't know. There's a lot that I have a lot of thoughts about education. I'm sure you do too. If you work in it and you see, sure, sure. you know, you see students, you want it, you want it to be good, but it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell me about where you're from. Like, what's your, where were you born? Where do you, where were you raised? Uh, I was raised in the suburbs of Chicago. So, oh, so this so, is, that's home turf. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it was, you know, first, uh, a suburb called Buffalo Grove and then, uh, the North Shore suburb Highland Park. So how was that? Uh, it was so like John you know, Hughesian. Was it like that? Well, uh, Highland Park, Highland Park was a bit like Buffalo Grove was, uh, it's, it's weird. You know, um, it, they're not that far from each other, but, but Highland Park is a North shore suburb, right? Which is a John. I mean, it's, it's Lake forest, which is where John Hughes is from is the next suburb over. Um, and he shot stuff in Highland Park and, you know, Highland Park's an old, a lot of movies, you know, it's a risky business chase scene, you know, stuff nice. like that. Yeah. Um, it's really pretty there. Um, and, and, and so when we moved there, when I was uh, 14, so when I was a when I was a freshman, um, and Buffalo Grove was sort of like, and I, I still I still don't really have a handle on whether this was just like a sort of Nirvana changing tide kind of thing, or if it was where I was from or some combination. But in Buffalo Grove, um, I was like this like sort of scummy metalhead kid uh, who got in like lots of fights, and um, then and that was normal. Like that wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't like the there were wasn't the thing everyone did but it was it wasn't particularly strange and and then i got to highland park and everyone was like a lot nicer and they they like they smoked weed like way younger like we drank you know like in fifth grade but it was like stealing dad's beers and stuff you drank in fifth grade yeah we had had, you know the friend with the dad and you know and we he had a lot of beers and you know you get the beer and yeah yeah fifth grade fifth grade yeah drunk yeah, yeah. Well, you can't help but get drunk in fifth grade if you yeah, right. <laughs> you have like a sip. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but I mean, were you, you know, actively yeah. getting shit faced on the weekends as a fifth grader? I, occasionally, yeah, yeah. I mean, I not, like it wasn't it wasn't a you know pro- it sounds weird it wasn't a problem. <laughs> it was you know it's all shits and giggles. I mean, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, we we that was like that was one of the things we looked forward to to doing was stealing some beer from someone's father and you know drinking it in the garage and then throwing up later. You know, I mean, I great know. weekend. Yeah, phenomenal. You know, we got drunk. Um, couldn't get girls. You right. Know? So it's like. Uh, that's the whole reason that, I think I drank beer in high school and college was just to like have you know try to gin up enough courage just to talk to a woman. Well, know, yeah. Girl. Oh, I mean, for me, it was a comfort for you know not you know being able, knowing how to talk to a girl you know for a while. Um, but uh, but no, but then I get to Highland Park and like like see like we wanted like like when I was a kid like you know I'm this you know big sort of heavy smoker now but like when I was when I was growing up I was like really anti smoking you know because I got I got that 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 shit got in my head you know and. Uh, not that it's shit, <laughs> but you know, like it was, but it was very, but it was, it was very, but yeah, it was, but, but the, it would, but, but I responded to it like really like a stupid propagandized to child. I was sort of that thing. way too. Yeah. I could see, you know, from like, I, I want to say like fourth or fifth grade yeah. until I was like a freshman in high school. Yeah. 
I was like, you know, very adamant that I was never going to drink. I was never going to Oh, see, smoke. Well, no, well, that's what I was going to say. It was only smoking. Like, it was only smoking. It was like because I, like, from very, from very early really wanted to do drugs and drink. Like, <laughs> I, like, I, like, like, I was like, that is something I was like, I want sex and drugs and drinking, but cigarettes are so bad. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was stupid. And, um, but anyway. So, yeah. So, so when did you flip? So, when did you turn? When did I turn to the cigarette thing? Yeah. I, after my freshman year of high school, I had this like stupid dream, and, and I really enjoyed smoking something that resembled a cigarette. And, and I, I like went. It was like the least like peer pressured moment ever. Like I had this dream where I liked smoking basically, and I walked to the gas station and bought smokes, and like started smoking. And that was it. That was it. And like I, it, it wasn't. I didn't. I wasn't even friends with anyone who smoked. I was just like that. This is what I'm going to do. This with my summer. I'm bored. <laughs> I have a goal. I, I, I go. I, I work. You know. I was working for my father. Like doing this like office boy stuff like downtown and it was like you know what am i gonna do with myself smoke i'm gonna smoke and it was fun it was fun as hell wow. um, but uh but yeah but anyway so the the suburb thing i was, I was gonna do so so buffalo grove you, there's that kind of kid the sort of heavy metal fighter kid and then in highland park like everyone was like nicer and like um, and they they smoked weed, and we we couldn't get weed in junior high, but they'd like been smoking weed since like seventh grade, and like Jesus, they listened to better music, and yeah. uh, and uh, had better haircuts, and um, we're just they were they were nicer, but I still I didn't I didn't really fit in, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so I made friends there, but then I pretty rapidly left that school. I wanted to you know sort of drop out and and uh, but ended up going to a private high school in, in Evanston that was sort of for. Children like myself and metalhead. Well, no, not not for me. By then, I wasn't a metalhead. And then I was like, you know, true blue punk rocker bullshit. You know, like right. whatever. You know, um, trying to be you know a rocker. And uh, but but that was but that school was this really cool place called Royce Moore. And uh, what's it called? Royce Moore. It was a really tiny. My class was like twenty one, and it was basically like kids who either got kicked out or were you know or had had to leave. Uh, school for some reason and and then and a lot of it was this really cool mix because they had a lot of scholarship kids you know a lot being relative it's a very small school um and then they also had like the big you know sort of private schools in chicago like parker and latin um a lot of kids who were who'd been kicked out of both parker and latin and often like uc lab school and stuff this was like this is where you landed and it was like the sort of but it wasn't a reform school or anything it was this really kind of laid back great place where you had great teachers um yeah that sounds great it was it was phenomenal and, and i mean the thing that sold me like i wanted to go because there was a girl there that i like you know but uh um but i remember i went for the interview and like and they were like okay this worked out you know you can come here if you want and the principal was doing this and the principal was like he like pointed to a corner like across the street i just wondered he's like that's where you go to smoke cigarettes and like it was just like and it was just this like thing it was like everything was chill like it was like they weren't it wasn't like some hippie kind of thing where they were like there was nothing creepy about it, but it was just very, they like, you had to turn in all your homework, right? But you could turn it in by the end of the semester. You know, it was like, you didn't, it was, it was, they were, they were sort of like letting you keep your own pace there. And like a lot of the authoritarian stuff that like kind of drove me crazy that maybe what an authoritarian's wrong word. I mean, I had authority problems and kind of stuff that I felt like, uh, I was made to do in, in, in other schools that I hated. They, they didn't really put their thumb down about that stuff. They, they well, were, I mean, is there like, I mean, that's interesting. Cause like, is there a, some sort of driving philo- like a, a real philosophy that they're following or was it just sort of, no, like I this? think it was, it was pretty, pretty individually tailored in a way, but I think, I think a lot of, a lot of the students there sort of just had happened to have, I think it's a fairly common problem. I mean, it's like, um, where you have someone who's like somewhat intelligent and just really hates having to turn shit in. Like, and I still, I have problems with deadlines. The second you give me a deadline, I don't want to do it. 
Like, I, re- I read like crazy from the time I was really young, but I didn't read what was assigned to me because it was assigned to me. Like, and it, it was just, it was, it's some, it's, I mean, it's dumb. I even recognize it now. It's, it's, it's very, it's very dumb. Um, there's no, there's no benefit from it, but it, it is how I am. Like, it's, it's, I would get, in grad school, I finally came around. I had these, like, sort of heroes of mine, you know, assigning me books to read, and it was, it was very different. Where'd you go to grad school? Uh, Syracuse. Oh, at Syracuse. Yeah. Got your MFA. So who are you studying with? George Saunders, mostly, and, uh, you know, Mary Gateskill, Ugh. Arthur Flowers. I mean, it was really, it was a really great scene. And, What's like, George Saunders like? He's like, the best teacher I've ever met. I mean, he's, he's... He's great really teacher and a great not, writer. Oh, clearly a great writer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, but you know, anyone you know can see that he's, as a teacher, he's he's like the model teacher. I mean, um, and I think that's pretty across the board. Like, do you call like, him George? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You do. Yeah, not yeah, Mr. Saunders. No, no. I tried to. You know, when he called to tell me I was in, I was like, Mr. Saunders. He's like, please. You know, <laughs> I was like, and I was uncomfortable. So with that. he called like, you. Yeah, yeah, they call when, when you when you. Yeah, but I mean, George door. Saunders called. You? Yeah, yeah. Imagine that, right? Like this guy. This is like I applied. Uh, like this guy was my like my my hero, my you know, and uh, and yeah, and he called and left a message on my machine. I wasn't home, and then and like you know, there was like these crazy hours where like the girl I was living at the time, living with at the time, we were talking about it. And I was like, I was like, wait, so I was like, does that mean I'm in? Like he didn't say I was in on the machine. He's like, this is George Saunders at Syracuse University. You know, call me back at you know this number, and. uh I thought, like, maybe, like, I had to get, like, some kind of interview on the phone or, you know, I don't know. I didn't know anything. And, podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> we'd, you know, we'd do a podcast together and see you see how it went. No, but, but uh, but yeah, and I remember we watched this. I tried to watch this movie, Way of the Gun. I called him back. and, and just, So, basically, I called him back and, and got his machine. And so, I was like, shit, now, you know, I'm really. This is in the days of machines. Not this is, oh, yeah, this is machines. This is, well, I was, I'm a little behind the times technology. But, yeah, so it was, it was like, uh, the beginning of 2001, right? So, yeah. Um, you still had options in those days, you know, and, uh, the, the machine, the, the, if you had a machine, you weren't that, in, you know, that scrubby. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we rented way of the gun and I couldn't watch, like I was, I watched this movie. I don't even know what it's about. It's Benicio del Toro and there's gunplay. Um, and, uh, I, I, I remember I just didn't see it and I kept being like, I can't even focus on this movie. And, uh, and then he called me back and he was like, so these are, these are the offer. This is the offer we're making to you. And I was like, an offer, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was so, so yeah, that's, that's not much of a, much of a story. Well, that's great. Yeah. That's great. So you were there for two years, three years, three years, yeah. three years. And did you teach when you were there? I did. I taught, um, first year I didn't have to teach. Second year I taught comp and third year we taught this, uh, this lit, this lit class. So those living writers, a really fun class to teach because the writers come in, whoever, whoever you're teaching. And were you working on the instructions while you were there? I, I was, it was, it was, uh, the first, uh, well, not even the first couple hundred pages, but a couple hundred pages of it were my thesis. So I was working on a lot of stories there and, and that sort of kept switching off and the last year pretty much exclusively the instructions. And then back to Chicago. Then back to Chicago. Yeah. And you're, did you, did you, were you with your girlfriend when you were in graduate school or did you meet no. her? No, no, I met her, I met her in Chicago. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you came back triumphant with the MFA. Yeah. It's like yeah. hundreds of pages under your arm. Yeah, not so triumphant. Hundreds of pages under my arm that didn't amount to a finished novel. This <laughs> is how I came back. <laughs> But and so then you just, you found teaching work mm-hmm. to sort of get yourself get yourself through, uh, pay the rent. Yep. Working on the book, yep. seven years. Yeah. Any loss of faith? I mean, you seem fairly well adjusted. I mean, do you, do you get do you get down? Do you get depressed or anything? Or you oh, get... yeah, all the time. I mean, but not but not about uh, not so much about the book. I mean, with, with the the thing that sucked was when I first came back from Syracuse. It started happening in, at the end of my time there. But when I first came back, and for the following couple of years year and a half, um, my back was all screwed up. Cause I used to write at Syracuse. I would write like 12 hours a day and I sat like a moron. I sat like on a bad chair, like sort of 
like Indian style, you know, like they used to say, and like kind of lean forward and this chair would roll back and I'd like sit in this position that was just stupid um, and chain smoke and drink tons of coffee. <laughs> and um, and I, I, I had like a pinched nerve in my back. Where? And, uh, Low back? Upper. 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 Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, why do writers always have bad? I mean, I guess we sit too much. We sit. It's because and it's because we. I think because you trance out. It's not just. It, it's not just the number of hours in the day you sit. It's that you sit in a trance-like way and you don't get up. So it's like that's the thing. Have if you, you been reading this stuff about how that kills you? Like it yeah, shortens well, your lifespan. Like, oh no! Wait. Yeah, right. like like sitting down. People who sit a majority of their day, whatever their profession happens yeah. to be, the act of sitting and not getting up for extended periods kills you. Kills you. I'm I dead. Read, I'm I dead. No, me too. I'm like, I, you know, I've done this stuff for the, uh, you know, for the past God knows however many years. And, uh, you know, I've, I find myself constantly reading these articles, um, you know, and freaking out about the lifestyle. So, like, what I try to do now is getting, you know, get up uh, once or twice a day and go for a walk or, I don't know, take the dog around the block. But I don't think there's any way around it. If you're going to be a writer, you're going to wind up uh, dead. Dead early. Dead early. Wow. Wow. Huh. That's uh that's a bummer. Um yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but so yeah, but so on top of it there's pain though. <laughs> and so 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 yeah, like um when I when I came back, I, it was I had like a year and a half, two years where I actually actually had to stand to write. I couldn't sit at a desk at all. Um, and that's like sucked. Hemingway. Hemingway used to stand. Yeah, but that's because he was cool and because he was but, tough. No, like, he had this hemorrhoids. Is, is that really? Is yeah, that so? Yeah, oh, I no, thought it was like I thought it was tough because Nabokov did too. I think, right? Maybe, yeah, but you know, but I think that maybe it's it's nicer to say that you're cool and tough than it is ah, to say you have hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids. <laughs> oh, I feel a little better about that. Though. Yeah, nice. No, it's nice. Um, it's a leveler. Yeah, because for me it was just like you're weak. You <laughs> <laughs> like it's like <laughs> sit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was that was that that was the that would, you know you asked about like uh, sort of loss of faith or something that 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 sucked. I mean that's that's a great uh impingement did you cure it worked out. i didn't cure it so much as figured out how to deal with it which was basically not go to like eastern medical guys and chiropractors but go to like an md and get some painkillers and eat some b6 it was it was ultimately the b6 i think which is just terribly simple and like i kind of wish i would have I, I i kept dodging mds i'm afraid of doctors very deeply and oh you, finally, have a, you have that medical thing like needles and stuff it's not just needles. I don't like needles, but no, I just like doctors. I've had my, my family's had bad experience with doctors, you know, just like throughout. I had like, I had surgeries when I was a little kid. Like I didn't like. Like what? I had this, these stupid cysts in my throat, right? And like there, it's like, it was nothing. It was these things called thyroglossal duct cysts. It was like very minor. Thyroglossal duct cysts? Duct cysts. Yeah, there's the thyroglossal duct and there are cysts in, the, in, in there. And like what happened was I got like when I was five. Um, one came out like they, they start showing it. it's like it's not like terribly dangerous but you don't want it there so I had a surgery and they got rid of it and then like the next year another I had another one and that wasn't supposed to happen and I got a surgery and they got rid of it and then a few years later I had another one and this was like this is like obscene like I'm like you know a seven year old kid I'm not supposed to have three surgeries and it was very traumatic to have a surgery you know I think if you're an adult I've never had one as an adult but as a kid it's really traumatic and uh and uh, so the third time we went to a different doctor and he's like the first guy just fucked up you know the first couple times and like there's this whole bunch like he basically was like we can just get out anything that will potentially cause these things which is what the first guy should have done and they did and I was out of there quicker it was an, it was an outpatient surgery whereas the first two I was in the hospital for three days each time and uh, after that I just don't trust doctors I can't, I can't like, yeah. I, like they, say, they say shit to me I'm like you actually might not know what you're talking about no it's freaky like, I have the same yeah. experience because I have a, a low back thing mm -hmm. and I I mean there's not a single procedure 
uh, or you know, different kind of me- you know. There's not a kind of medicine that you could apply to a low back that I haven't tried. From right. getting Rolf to acupuncture, yeah, Rolf to an crazy, orthopedic yeah. to physical therapy to mm-hmm. yoga to Pilates to I mean, I everything yeah. sure, to take sure. care of this back and uh, chiropractic, etc. And they all told me they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And yeah. yet the pain did not subside. And we're really confident about it, right? No, and you yeah. want to know how it finally shook out is that uh, I wound up going to a podiatrist. Yeah. So I had gotten orthotics when I was like a kid. Okay. And then I went to a hippie doctor in Boulder who told me that I should not have orthotics. That was what was screwing up my back because uh-huh. I wasn't, it wasn't like nature and I wasn't like walking barefoot and all that stuff. Really? So I got rid of the orthotics and like for years I would have like, you know. I would be fine, and then there would be like an episode of like intense pain, but it would happen at least twice a year that I would be debilitated. Okay. And so finally, I go back to this podiatrist, uh-huh. and he gives me orthotics, and my back still hurts a little bit, but it's been manageable ever since. Huh. Like that was it. Yeah. And uh, I wound up having a bill come due, and I was like, you know, I want to say like a month late on mm-hmm. the bill. I just had forgotten about it. It wasn't yeah. expensive, but it was like I owed him like a, yeah. uh, the copay. Right. You know, right. I had like 60 bucks outstanding. Sure, sure. And so. I think I had lost the return envelope. Okay. And so I needed to get the address to mail the check. Right. And so I go online and I Google the guy and he's a level one sex offender. <laughs> Jesus. So he got arrested in like the state of Florida for like uh-huh. molesting. Like I forget. I mean, it, I, the charges, it wasn't completely detailed, but from what I read, it sounded like he was with like a young girl. Oh man. And it was like pretty heavy. Huh. But he, he healed me. Ugh. Yeah. I was finally healed, but it was by a pedophile. Wow. And so healed by a pedophile. Yeah. It's the next, it's the next book. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I share with you because of that, I have like a total mistrust of doctors. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it's kinda like a mechanic. Yeah. You know, like they know there's like this intelligence deficient or um, discrepancy. Yeah. And they have this big advantage on you. Mm-hmm. And then I also have and I don't know if you share this, but like there's a part of me that sort of resents the way that our society is structured where like there's this, uh, not respect, but I mean, it's beyond respect almost, but there's something conferred on people, uh, with an MD, like suffix yeah. to their name that is just sort of automatic. It's yeah. like, if somebody's a doctor, it's like, Oh, he's a doctor. Right. Never mind the fact that he could be a really shitty doctor right, who right. performs like, you know, <laughs> yeah. bad surgeries on yeah. kids. Absolutely. Uh, it's just the fact that you get that and you yeah. automatically have this esteem in our yeah. culture. Maybe you got the same authority problem as me. Yeah, <laughs> I think like, I, I'm no, starting. I get worked up about yeah. this. No, 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 no. I, I get I get pretty bothered by it. It's it's uh, you know, I, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm not going to tell that story. What um, story? Come on. Uh, and there, there's a we have a someone someone that that, that we know who who is a doctor. Uh, he's a, a friend of our family's. Um, he he uh, he's he has that. He's used to that kind of respect, kind of thing, and, and I remember that he, he he approached me after um after my book came out, and he, and he said, you know, um, and he said this in all seriousness. He's like, you know, next time you need to write a four hundred page book, and I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm I'm like I'm trying to you know be jokey about it, like, you know, he's like, write a four hundred page book. That's what they make the movies out of, you know, and that's and I was like, yeah, I was like, I think I'm gonna write, you know, I'm write, try to write like a much shorter book next time. That's what I'm into. You know, I'm gonna write you know a two hundred page book, hundred eighty page book. Like, no, 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 it's too short. Go for a four hundred page book. That's what they make movies about. And I was like, "All right, like I, I don't, I don't even know. Like, is this, this is like a really crazy good deadpan this guy's doing or whatever?" But he apparently like had told different members of my family the same thing. This, this, this MD 
knows what they make movies out of. Like, yeah. And he, he, like, yeah, it was, it was, uh, but, I, but I feel like that's like a... Thinks he can diagnose anything. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I think this, this is a doctor thing. I mean, it's, it's also just maybe like, it's a certain kind of... Um, I don't, I don't know. So maybe, maybe anyone who has achieved a certain thing, because it's not easy to become a doctor. Like, That's right. Like, um, maybe, yeah, when, you know, maybe, I don't know a lot of PhDs, but maybe, maybe PhDs were that way too. I don't think so though. No, that's not, eh, eh. it's not uh, quite the same. I mean, I guess, but PhD, when you're called a doctor, mm-hmm. I guess that, you know, there, there's something to it, but I feel like, I don't think when you're a PhD, you get called doctor by the kids in the neighborhood. Right. No, 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 absolutely not. But I just, I mean, I wonder like if that, that sort of like, I am an expert on things that I am not an expert on, uh, happens a lot with PhDs. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't I mean, I think it is more with MDs. I don't know. But, but there, but there's, again, there's, there's, there's always, you got a question too, or at least I do, where it's like, I feel, you know, I have this idea of doctors as, as, as kind of jerks who, who, who. But but that might be because I'm just so powerless. They they can they can tell me something is wrong with me and it will get to me. I'm not going to decide not to believe them. Right? They could tell me how to fix something and then I feel obligated to try it. Um, and without without having any kind of sense of whether what they're advising me to do makes sense. Yeah. Um, I just don't know anything about. It's like medicine. it's like an auto mechanic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like an auto mechanic. It's exactly exactly yeah. Um, but the auto mechanic. Uh, well, no, it's it's just like with an auto mechanic. Yeah, it's like yeah. I just got to go like Angie's list. I yeah. just got to get yeah. a good one. I mean, yeah. if you get a good one, that's mm-hmm. great. There's nothing better than a good doctor when you really need one. But I just feel like uh, there are certain ailments, and I think the back is one of them that yeah. they just haven't figured out. Yeah, I and I guess the uh, what do you call them? What kind of cysts are those? Thyroglossal duct cysts. No, they figured that is, that's a cinch. That's see, that's the whole thing. Is like with the back. Yeah, you you meet people with back problems, and they're basically like you're just always going to have back problems. Yeah. Um, Thyroglossal duct cyst, that's like, that's apparently like, like screwing that up is like screwing up, like putting, you know, uh, stitches on somebody. Like it's, 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 it's on a kid. Yeah. 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 That's, that's horseshit. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about McSweeney's briefly. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, there's You don't want to keep talking about my parrot or anything? We'll come back you know, to the parrot. Uh, right, okay, the lovebird okay, was yeah. really the one that moved me. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, but you know, with McSweeney's, it's obviously got this, uh, it's carved out this cultural identity. Mm. Uh, to get, I mean, as a, as a writer of literary fiction, to be published by them mm-hmm. uh, carries with it a, a certain weight. Mm-hmm. You know what? What was your experience uh, working with them? I mean, it sounded like Eli, uh, mm-hmm. you, you and Eli had a great working relationship. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you work with Dave Eggers at all in the book, or do no, you, not no, at all? I, no, I haven't. I, he works. He works with some of the writers. I think. Um, I think it, it depends who is. Um, who's acquiring, or you know, or, or something like that. I, I don't know what it depends. I'm actually making that up. Um, but uh, it was it was Eli uh, for me, and that's that's who I'm working with on the collection too. But there's also like there's other readers who you know he'll he'll show stuff to, and I'll I'll hear their feedback if I want it. So have you been to their offices? They have like yeah, a, a couple times. They yeah. have like a full situation. I don't know other what other situations look like, but yeah, I mean they have a pretty cool space. Like it's it's uh it's it's this wide open loft kind of situation. It's exactly how I would picture it. Yeah, and there's like and everyone's uh, nice and smart. And yeah, pretty much, and and it's it's small though. I mean, I think you know they only have I think uh, eight full time employees, so it's a uh, you know eight paid employees, and uh, and then they have a bunch of interns, and um, it's it's a great vibe there, man. I mean, it's it's like and 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 I think that's one of the things. One of the big advantages of them, and I think with, with any you know indie press that, that knows what it's doing, but definitely them because I've met all of them specifically, is like if uh, they're on board for something, they're on board for it. Like it's it's not like I think uh, you know I think at, at other at other houses I hear about you know a writer who has an editor who's very excited about his book, and then he has to go pitch it to the marketing people, and 
um, the marketing people, if they're not into it, you're fucked. They're just, you know, um, we, they're not going to get you a cool cover. They're not, you know, there, there's all, and, and so with McSweeney's, they're like, they, they have this really great distro person, great publicity person, great everything. And, um, and if someone's doing something there, they're all doing it. And, uh, I think that works out kind of beautifully. Well, they don't overpublish. Well, that's certainly not. Yeah, yeah. I it's mean, a limited really, list. Yeah, I mean, so they, that's one of the reasons they're able to is like they're putting out. They're gonna they're gonna focus um, on very on relatively very few books. Uh, they're not they're not getting spread out, you know, everywhere. So, so the book comes out. Uh, how many? I mean, how many tour stops did you do? A lot, man. Like I don't know, like twenty ish. Um, so you were all over the country. Yeah, you we were doing interviews. Know, I you, wasn't in the south. I wasn't in the south. I wanted to be in the south. I've never been to the south. Never have? No, no, no. I really want to. And I really want to go to Texas. I know some people out there, but it was in terms of the, the cost of things, it was basically like Austin was, would be like a killer place to go. But if you go to Austin, there's kind of nowhere you can go that's near Austin after that, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So what about uh, like media? Did you get, I mean, I, I remember reading in several different places about yeah. the book. I mean, the, the sure. book got some attention. I think part yeah. of it was the, the size of the book, sure. you know, its yeah. length. Yeah, anytime think, a work of fiction like that comes out from a, a well-respected house, people yeah. tend to kind of perk up. Yeah, I mean that that certainly the the length didn't hurt it. Um, the fact that the cover is so pretty didn't hurt it. Um, they do great design. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, and uh, but I mean I think I think they just they did a really good job. Like I think the the and I, and I think I think there's also luck involved too. I mean, but but I think the publicity person I mix when uses uh, Julia Littman, uh, she just she just pushed the hell out of it distro guy pushed the hell out of it Eli pushed the hell out of it and like people you know they paid attention um and I think and, and I think like I said like and then there's there's some luck um so I mean all that stuff like when a book first comes out the attention that it gets it seems really kind of arbitrary um you know uh it, it, it I shouldn't say it seems arbitrary but it doesn't seem necessarily to have to do with the merit of the work unless it's coming from a from a house you trust right because it's you know whoever whatever book the house wants to sell the most they're gonna you know trumpet the most and that will inherently get a little more attention for it usually, I, th I think. Um, and uh, here, uh, yeah, McSweeney's did it. And I think I think people, like you said, I think if they, they put something out, um, folks are interested because it's McSweeney's. And beyond that, um, they were, I think, particularly pushing hard for my book. So, and, wow. and, and now you're going to Europe on a tour too? Like, how, many, yeah, how, short, many different, how many different foreign editions? Right, right now there's going to be three. So there's um, – Canongate is doing it in the U.K., um, this uh, press Incolte is doing it in France, and uh, the other press is uh, in in Holland is uh, Lebowski, which is actually named after the Big Lebowski. Apparently, because really, the, the founder is a big fan of the Big Lebowski. No so, way! Yeah, I haven't met him yet. I'm pretty excited to meet a guy who names his press after that. That's so, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be in Edinburgh and uh, Paris, and then later. Um, that's at the end of summer, and then like in November, there's a thing called Crossing Borders Festival, um, and that's uh, that's in The Hague in Antwerp. So, so you're doing like multiple trips? Yeah, I'm doing two two separate trips right now. Where are you so. Where are you reading in Paris? I don't know yet. I actually I actually met my French publisher last night in San Francisco for the first time. Uh, he he came in. He he gambles in Vegas apparently. Like he's a he's a pro gambler. He's fantastic. A, he's an awesome. Like they're, he's awesome. They're, the French game apparently is Omaha, which I'm. It's crazy to me. I'm, 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 I'm like, I play Hold'em. I'm not great at it, but... I don't even know what Omaha... I'm not a card it's, guy. It's a nine-card kind of nutty thing. Um, but it's a, it's a French game, so the French dominated that. That's their, that's the poker game for Frenchmen, I guess. Um, and you can come here and just, you know, kill a bunch of Americans at, at Omaha and, you know, make some dough. Uh, but anyway, 
he he um, his what, what was it? Oh, so so he told me that uh, that it's still it's it's up in the air where I'm going to do. They've set up a bunch of PR stuff, but he said it'll probably be one reading, and it's either going to be at this sort of cultural weeklies thing, or it'll be some separate deal. I don't know. But uh, and then in Edinburgh, it's going to be either one or two things. I think it's a reading, and then uh, some kind of you know on stage interview at the Edinburgh Book Festival. So. Oh, yeah. So now, and then the collection is due out... March. March of next year. And it's pretty much done? It's pretty much done. I mean, it's, it better be. It's due, it's due in... Uh, How many pages are we talking? Well, it depends. See, I mean, that's like, the thing that's, that's, that's cool about the collection is, like, I'm not going to... There, there's there's a couple stories that are either going to get to a point where I'm, where I'm good with them or they're not. And so it's basically, like, it's either a couple hundred pages or 300 pages. Like, these are longer stories. So, and if they're, if they're not, they're, if they're not fully cooked, then they're not going to go in. And if they are, then... And they are so you're gonna roll any of them out early in, in uh, magazines is that sort of the idea I think so yeah I mean right now we don't know don't know specifically where but my, I mean a good lot of them have already been published so it's like um, there's a couple there's I think three newer ones that that I'm gonna try to place somewhere but so uh, who are some who are some big writers for you big influences you mentioned Google but I mean who else yeah, Google, uh, Wallace um, George Saunders Philip Roth I think those are sort of the obvious ones I really like I really like Adam Dobie's work a lot uh, but I mean, and, and so like, I mean, there's a natural tendency for people to want to compare you to, with David Foster Wallace because yeah. of the length of the books. Sure. Like when you were writing this thing, mm-hmm. were you thinking, I mean, what, what were you thinking? You're like, I'm writing a thousand page novel. No, I wasn't thinking that. You weren't. No, I mean, well, I mean, by the, you know, by the last, you know, year and a half or two, I was. Like, I have, there's 375,000 words here. Yeah. Did you yeah. Ever, I mean, you're like, you never crossed your mind that this is going to be a bitch to sell. No, I mean, well, I didn't think, I just, I wasn't thinking of it like that. I mean, like, because there's, I think there's a certain point where, uh, by the time I got to the, to the point where the book was getting really long, I was really committed to it. And I was like, this book is not a thing I can half-ass. Like, there's, there's like, there's a way to, uh, um, and I, and I saw it. Like, there was like, when I was like, you know, five or 600 pages in, I was like, I can cut this to 200 pages and have it be like a shitty version of what I want it to be. Like, have it be, not, not even shitty, but like, have it be, you know, a very slick, sort of like cute little kid does this you know sort of kind of like tongue-in-cheek bullshit kind of book which I really didn't want to do like I was sort of like what I was dodging um and I have a beginning middle and end that will you know interest people and excite them but then I will hate myself <laughs> you know and like and I was like no I mean I'm you know I'm gonna I'm committed to this book and and I do um I'm not generally like a huge I'm not a particular fan of um long really long works but Infinite Jest is one of my favorite books and um and I do I, I I have at least a sense of what I like about a long book about um about disappearing into a universe for a sort of more extended period of time um and having you know potentially subtler things happen over longer periods than could otherwise happen in, in a shorter book and uh, I don't think that's a superior way or an inferior way it's just, it's just it's one way to to work and I was like I think I can do that um I thought I was trying that's that's what I was you know sort of going for with the book so. Uh, yeah, I think um, there, there, there was not. It was. It wasn't about selling it. There was. There was. I mean, I, I, there were times where I was like, "Shit, this might not sell to somebody," but that didn't really have an effect on my behavior. You know, I was, I was still gonna, you know, try to finish it, like and make it what it, what it could be. That was it. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, it seems to have worked out. You threaded quite a needle. I, I got pretty lucky. I got well, no, I mean, you know, but I mean, it's, it's got to be good too. So, congrats on it. Good luck with the collection. Thanks. Have fun in Europe. All right. And thanks for uh, being on the show. Thanks for having me, Brad. All right. 
Okay, everybody, there you have it. That's it. That's the show. That's my conversation with Adam Levin, the author of The Instructions. Uh, as far as I know, Adam does not have an official author website. That is what my uh, cursory searching on Google seems to indicate. If I'm wrong about this, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I'm not finding an Adam Levin website. Uh, I'm not even finding an Adam Levin Twitter feed. Uh, actually, I am finding an Adam Levin Twitter feed, but it's some guy who's getting his MBA, and uh, his Twitter avatar is like him sniffing a glass of white wine. I'm not, I'm not even kidding there. So Adam Levin, the author, uh, you know, as far as the Internet is concerned, he's a human ghost. He doesn't participate. He's not involved in social media. The man is focused. He's out there. He's writing 1,000-plus page novels. He's getting work done. You can get that work wherever books are sold from McSweeney's. The book is called The Instructions. Go and get it. You can bring it home. You can put it on your coffee table. Your friends will come over, and they will be impressed. They will see a 1,000-plus page book sitting on your coffee table, and they will say to themselves, my God, what intellectual rigor, what commanding depth of soul, and so on. You can take the book. You can put it on your bookshelf next to Infinite Jest in a dueling kind of manner. You can then throw Ulysses up there. You can do a lot of different things with the instructions. So before I go, closing orders of business, the regular stuff. Don't forget this show has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It's got a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. It's got a Facebook presence. I've got a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. And if you want to email me with thoughts on the show or you want to tell me a story or just vent or whatever, email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. And if you really like the show, if you're a regular listener, if this is providing real entertainment and uh, real comfort or whatever to you as you go about your day and you want to help out, I ask that you join the TNB Book Club. That's the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Just go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click Book Club in the menu bar, and sign up. It's $9.99 a month. It's less than the cost of a movie ticket. And for that money, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. So it's not just a cash giveaway. You're actually getting something. You're getting a book. And the, uh, the authors in the book club, I'll be talking to them on this show. So you'll get to hear me in conversation with them as you're reading the book or after you're reading the book or whatever. So if you do that, you have my gratitude uh, for eternity. Before I go, one last thought on the whole Occupy Writers thing, Occupy Wall Street. I fear that I wasn't eloquent enough on the front end. It's hard. It's one of those things that's hard to talk about. It's a big issue. It's a big thing that's happening. I really do feel that. And I feel like, uh, you know, what I was driving at is that it's very important to occupy Uh, and to protest and stand up when you feel like there's, uh, you know, something serious that needs to be said that's not getting heard. That's that's the American way, and it needs to be exercised. But I also feel like, uh, you know, in addition to that, and in addition to occupying as writers, I think it's also important to occupy as readers, to really be willing to read and to go to the people who have done the investigative work, the guys like Taibbi, uh, Michael Lewis, etc. People who have really, in, you know, invested themselves in understanding uh, our financial markets and the corruption that exists at the highest level of government and finance. And you need to go in there and go. And I say this to myself: I need to go in there and I need to revisit this stuff and I need to read until I'm creeped out, and then I need to keep reading. I need to read past the point at which I'm completely creeped out. I need to be affected. This needs to be like Jaws. I need to be afraid to go on Wall Street. I need to hear that music when I see someone in a dark suit, when I see a bank. Now, I mean, you know what I'm saying. So anyway, that's all I got for today. I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back soon with another uh, writer. We'll be in conversation. You can listen to us. We'll be going back and forth. 
And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon. I just said that, etc. cetera. <laughs>